This is a WTOP original podcast. Hi, this is Scott Greenberg. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. In this episode, we talk to Johan Milan, the winemaker of Simonsig Winery in South Africa. He has a wonderful history of family farming and wine production in South Africa. He talks about the farming behind the wine production and the sustainability efforts that they're using in the vineyards. And then we're going to try some wines to get down to the real South African flavors. We're going to have a lot of fun in this episode. So thanks for joining me. It's absolutely a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for coming all this way to join us. Good day, Scott. Thanks very much for having me. It's a big pleasure. So Simon Sig is owned and managed by you and, and your brother, Francois, and your sons and daughter, which they're, they're now the third generation in your family winery. That's a really kind of remarkable, uh, maybe not in South Africa, it certainly is here you know, in the States, to have a third generation. How did this all get started? Yeah, the uh, thing about the Milan family is they came there as French Huguenots uh, in 1688, and uh, the government at the time, or the Cape Colony, were were giving them uh, land. So I think from the very first Milan, his name was Jacques Milan, uh, they were given land and they started out as uh, as wine farmers. And uh, this tradition has continued to the modern day when uh, my father actually started Simon Sig in the early 50s. And from there, the, the brothers joined him. And uh, in the early 80s, and now we are uh, seeing some of our children also uh, joining in the business. So your family goes way beyond three generations of growing grapes. Simon Sig's been around for three generations, but the family history of of farming in South Africa is is much older. Yes, yes. Uh, The South African industry actually started when the Dutch uh, settled there uh, in uh, 1652, and then they planted vines basically to replenish the ships sailing around the southern tip of Africa to the east. And they uh, planted vines. And very soon after they arrived there for the first time, wine was made by uh, the Cape Colony. Uh, and uh, on the 2nd of November, uh, 1659, the governor wrote in his diary, praise the Lord, today the Cape, first Cape grapes were pressed <laughs> In South Africa. Yeah, because you can't have a long sea journey without wine. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, that's interesting. So, so back in the 1659, I think you just said, so South Africa kind of has a foot in both worlds, both old world and new world, if you think about it. Very, you know, a very long history of grape growing and wine production. But it's really only been recently that we've seen it here in the United States. So, South Africa wines... I would say not relatively a new thing, but certainly newer on uh, on the American scene. Yes, definitely. I think we've been making wine for 360 years, but for a long time we were very much focused on our domestic market, and it was only since democracy in the early 90s and that South Africa really started to uh, export to the international market. And I think after that, it started to become available here in the U.S. Well, thank goodness. <laughs> Small favors. So your family obviously has been in the wine business for a while. What, and I'm sure it's in your blood, but what brought you into the wine business? Was it something you always wanted to do? What was your path into this? You know, as a as a child growing up on the farm, uh, it was always something that you you were involved with. You were very close to it, and especially during harvest. You know, harvest in in the southern hemisphere is in 
uh, February, March, and it's also coincides with the hottest time of the year. And I can remember uh, we used to go to school by school bus, and uh, you get home from school, and it's mid-February. It's really hot, and you, uh, I would walk back to the house, and uh, on the way, stop in the cellar. And then uh, the young juices are busy with fermentation. You know, a young Chenin Blanc from Tank. It's, it was the closest thing we had to Coca-Cola, which uh, ice-cold fermenting in the tank doesn't contain a lot of alcohol, uh, still very sweet. So it was something really, really pleasant to drink and uh, take the heat of the day away. And so that was your first introduction. By, by the way, that sounds good. Can we still get some? <laughs> it kind of sounds like our version of lemonade. But so that as a child was your, your memory of, of this. But did that, was that what really hooked you in? You said, I'm going to be a winemaker one day? You know, at one stage I was very much uh, interested in the commercial side. So I did consider that um, I always liked mathematics and science and. Uh, the numbers tickled me, so I was considering doing something in commerce. But growing up on a on a wine farm, I think you do get the the love for the fruit of the vine in your blood. And in my parents' house, my father was uh, always a great innovator, and he loved to try different things. And I think he also exposed us to many different things during the our growing up years. And on top of that, my mother was also a wonderful. Uh, cook and a chef, and she uh, taught us the finer things of life uh, from that side. At some point, you had a decision to make about school, right? Am I going to go into mathematics and science, or am I going to go into you know viticulture? And I assume it was the latter. What, what path did you take in terms of your education? I um, finished school, and then uh, just when I had to make a decision to what I'm going to do with my life, I uh, decided to go to uh, the wine school in Stellenbosch at the University of Stellenbosch and studied uh, viticulture and knowledge over four years. And uh, I knew at that stage already it was absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, because, you know, during school holidays and, and after school also, you I would spend time in the cellar. And uh, I love the variety of activity in the cellar, and it's always busy. So I think that was something that interested me from a very early age. When was your first harvest? After my, I finished my studies, okay, during my, my final year, I had to do a, a practical year, practical stint in a, in a harvest uh, at another cellar. But my first vintage at Semonsoch was uh, in 1982. So uh, it's been a, a good number of years ago. Wow. You look so young. It must be the wine. Definitely preserved <laughs> in good wine. So in addition to Simon Sig, you've been around a bit. I, I, I read your bio earlier, and, and you have gone around the world tasting other wines. I mean, you've, you've been to Bordeaux and, and in Spain and others. Is, did you pick up any winemaking techniques or I want to make a wine like that? Was there anything that really kind of stood out to you in your travels? Oh, definitely. You know, it's uh, wine is produced all over the world, but you tend to go back to the classic countries to see how they do things because that's what broadens your horizons. But in, in more recent times, I think uh, traveling to the new world countries that have similar uh, conditions to ours uh, in the Cape definitely also gave me a, an insight into what other new world countries are doing. And you never stop learning. And that's one thing that's so uh, stimulating about uh, being a winemaker, not only 
Uh, do you learn from the, the traditional winemaking countries? But wherever you go, you can actually go to your next door neighbor and you get some bright ideas there that uh, becomes uh, uh, very helpful in, in growing your own pool of expertise. Well, one of your own bright ideas, I understand you're the first winemaker to make a very unique blend, in, including Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and Pinotage, which, well, first of all, tell us about Pinotage. I don't think a lot of a lot of consumers actually know what Pinotage is and, and how it's actually associated with South Africa. Yeah, Pinotage is a crossing, so that means that some the professor who started it all uh, was uh, a professor at the wine school in Stellenbosch, and in 1924, he took the pollen of, of the one grape variety, being Pinot Noir, uh, put it on the stamen of the other variety, which was Sinzo. Uh, just keep in mind that Sinzo in those days in South Africa was known by the name of Hermitage. So he, uh, out of the experiment, he had four seeds which he planted, and that became a new crossing and a new variety. And he took the Pinot from Pinot Noir and the Taj from Hermitage and made it Pinotage. So that's where the name comes from. And um, for, for many decades, actually, nothing much happened until the late 50s when one of the growers not far from us uh, actually made the champion South African red wine from Pinotage. And all of a sudden, the whole industry sat up and took notice. So what, if, if you were thinking about South Africa, when you think about Napa Valley, most people think Cabernet Sauvignon, right? When you think yeah. about the Loire Valley in France, people think of Sauvignon Blanc or, or Chenin Blanc. When I say Stellenbosch, what what do I think of? What am I supposed to think of? You know, that's one thing that uh, Stellenbosch is actually blessed with the fact that uh, we can actually do a huge variety of different grape varieties, different styles of wine climatically, and uh, the soils are really suited to that. And uh, that's on one side a blessing. On the other side, it also means that what do we actually want to be known for and um, the one thing that we've discovered more recently is actually that uh, Cabernet is a variety that's quite choosy in the sense of where it will make premium quality wine. And that is something that I think going forward from this uh, into the future, Cabernet will become more and more associated with with Stellenbosch. But getting back to the Pinotage, I feel at Simonsach we have uh, decomposed shale soil. So that soil's deposited by water many millions of years ago and uh, contains high levels of clay. And it's particularly suited to, to pinotage as well as Chenin Blanc because it makes a wine and a pinotage with uh, a lot of aromatic perfumed fruit, which I think is ideal for pinotage because it is a variety with uh, beautiful fruit intensity. So your your vineyards are all located in the Stellenbosch region, yes. And the the are the soils fairly uh, the same composition throughout your vineyard lands, or is there any variations in in terms of the soils that you're growing your your vines on? The soils are actually quite uh, different. Uh, you know, sometimes you get with even in in one vineyard block. There are some variations, but all of these uh, uh, soil sites or the vineyard sites are, are monitored and uh, mapped so that you can decide 
which part you can even plant it according to uh, the the soil type with with what uh, rootstock you might use. But in general, I would say the soil types, uh, we've got the shale soils that I mentioned, as well as uh, soils of uh, granitic origin, which is a volcanic type of soil, where the the wines tend to have bigger, fuller body, but they also contains uh, high levels of clay. And then, of course, uh, uh, sandstone, decomposed sandstone in, in some areas. So that, in general, is the three main types of soil. So it sounds like you've got a wide palette from which to plant in. Uh, exactly. Does a lot of the winemaking decisions go actually into the vineyard? Like, I, I really want to plant Punitage here, and I want to plant Chenin Blanc there. And, you know, how, how are those decisions made? Oh, yes, absolutely. The the soil and the, the potential of the soil will determine what varieties we uh, will plant. We are th- I think in the past it was more about we need some more Chenin Blanc and then we'll plant it on the first piece of land that was uh, available. But now uh, it's a lot more scientific. There's a lot more uh, research that has gone into it. So we've got a much better idea that what soil will give the best result uh, for which variety. So I think that was a big breakthrough. And, and then once once you actually have those uh, grapes in the tank, so to speak, you've got the, the wine you know, and then then the fun begins, and that's where I'm going to circle back around to you. Uh, you are a little bit of a mad scientist in terms of <laughs> in terms of you know blending. You were the first to do this Pinotage, Cabernet Sauvignon, and and Merlot blend. Um, tell me, like, first of all, how did you come up with that? And then um, I, I got to believe you know your father at this point is is probably scratching his head. <laughs> Especially when I gave the the wine, uh, named it after him, you know, that was uh, quite ironic. Actually, that was a that was a good move. Hey, Dad, I got good news and bad news. Yeah, yeah, or good news no. and interesting news, I should say. Immediately liked the wine, but um, actually, it was interesting that uh, in the late eighties, that uh, at that stage, Pinotage was was not very popular, uh, in the marketplace, even amongst winemakers, but. It was always playing second fiddle to the, the Cabernets and the Chirais. So I decided to do Pinotage from a very good uh, site and see what happens if you give it premium quality new oak maturation. And that was the start of a whole new trend because at that stage nobody else did it. And uh, so I repeated that uh, in 1990-91, and at that stage, I had a visitor from the UK who was doing his uh, Master of Wine thesis, and he was researching his uh, uh, thesis, and he asked me, what can you blend with Pinotage? And it was in the middle of harvest, and um, I had this Pinotage in New Oak and Cabernet and uh, Merlot, and I actually went back to the cellar and started to play around and was quite amazed to see what the end result was, and that led to the first wine that I made for on a very small scale that was auctioned by the, the Cape Winemakers Guild auction. Which is a big deal, I understand. I have a, a very good friend here uh, locally who goes down every year for this uh, uh, auction, and he said it's 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 just wonderful. It's quite the party, too, from what exactly. I hear yeah, so, but it, down there. It's also a, like a stage where you can do something that's different from your normal commercial wines and do something that's innovative and uh, interesting. And speaking of innovative and, and interesting, I understand you're the first South African winery in, in, the, in the country, actually, to earn a sustainability seal, which is such a big deal now. I mean, we talk about organic and biodynamic, but really it all starts with sustainability. Tell me about what, what was the, uh, the motivation behind this. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, the sustainability and uh, respect for the environment is not only something that's uh, important to Simon Sick, but also to the whole South African industry. You know, I, I always believe that because we live close to nature, we we actually make a living out of nature. So in order to be respectful towards nature, we have to do things in a sustainable way. And in the past, I think it was a lot more about the quicker you could get to the end result. But nowadays, we are a lot more careful that what you do in the vineyard and how you produce the wine is that it will leave the environment almost in a better situation afterwards. So it is something that has now become very much a core value of not only uh, our estate, but uh, the industry as a whole. What are some of the changes you made at the winery and in the vineyard to to move towards sustainability? You know, I think the way the, the we are spraying pesticides, not so much pesticides, but mostly fungicides, mm-hmm. um, it's become a lot more careful in the sense that you don't just go out there and try and kill everything. Um, secondly, in the cellar, the materials we use uh, like for filtration and so forth, is also that there's no byproduct that ends up in the uh, in the environment. So over the years, things have been changing from much more uh, toxic, not toxic, but you know, uh, materials that don't uh, deteriorate in the in nature that quickly to something that's a lot more softer on the environment. Um, and also the the what is done with uh, the cellar effluent and the wastewater incredibly important that doesn't end up in in rivers for instance uh, where it will pollute the water and i understand that's important to you for another reason because you're a, an avid fisherman you and i share that passion oh well yeah didn't, that's and, good to and know. also i'm, I'm a, I, I love diving i saw that in your bio that you also are a, an avid diver for that's right yeah. yes we yeah. are fortunate to have uh, a very long coastline and uh, within uh, an hour's drive, you you can be in uh, some of the fin- most fantastic diving spots uh, close to to home. And uh, so I grew up with diving for crayfish and abalone and and things like that. So uh, it is one of the perks of being so close to the the Atlantic. See, I, you and I actually do share something in common. And uh, when I was uh, in college uh, down in in Southern California. And uh, it get towards the end of the month, and I would uh, start running out of money, and I had to save money to make sure I could pay my rent. Uh, my my then girlfriend, and glad to say now wife, uh, she and I would get in the car and put our scuba tanks in the car and and drive down the coast for maybe just ten miles, not far, and and spend a dollar getting our air tanks filled, and then we would uh, shuffle in into the sea and. We would go diving for abalone and, and lobster, and and this is a couple of years before the moratorium took a hold on abalone in, in uh, Southern California, and we ate so much abalone and so much lobster, we actually got sick of it as college students. And I look back on those days, and I'm like, what was I thinking? <laughs> why uh, why can't I do that anymore? But uh, that's just something that I thought was kind of fun when I. Yeah, read I also your... got a, a story to tell as students. You know, you're always a bit short of money. We would go diving, um, and then the, there was a hotel close to the to the place we went diving, and they would put a box on the other side of the counter. So for every abalone in the box, you would get a beer. So uh, it was a way of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the winemaker drinks beer. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do, especially after a long day of tasting. It's, uh, it's a good thirst quencher. Right. It takes a lot of beer to make good wine. 
That's true. Yep, that's, that's true. I, I know exactly what that is. And speaking of good wine and tasting good wine, I think we're coming up on that portion of uh, the episode where we actually get to taste some of these wonderful wines. Now, you brought four wines with you today. Very excited about this. And I'm particularly excited about the bottle of bubbles you're about to open because that is a very unique very unique blend, which um, I'm I'm very interested in trying. So, if if you'll take a moment to open that, and while you do, I'm going to actually talk a little bit about why this is kind of a special thing. So, first of all, Simon Sig, and this is called. Let's see if I get this name right. Caps Vunkel. Caps Vunkel. Yeah. Caps Caps. You the Kapsa. V you pronounce like an F, so it's Vunkel. Vunkel. Caps means Funkle. Cape Sparkle. Sparkle Kip. of the Cape. Cups Bunkel. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Brut Rosé. Um, and this is the 2016 vintage. Now, as, as you go, go ahead go ahead and open that. Let's see if you can actually get it to 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 pop a little bit into that microphone there. So I know that it's, um, you're not supposed to get a big pop. Ah, voila. Perfect. So they, they say that. Opening a bottle of, of sparkling wine should be no louder than a, a nun's fart. This is the in church. <laughs> in church, that's right. But uh, we, I actually asked that we get a good pop on this for um, our segment. And what is so unique about this wine? And very excited about this. Thank you. Let me give you a, a glass here so that you can try it along with me. Wow! Thank look at you. that. Wow. Okay. So, what's unique about this wine is. It's 64% Pinot Noir. Okay. Well, nothing unique about that. There's a lot of Pinot Noir in, in, in sparkling wines, right? In rosé. 2% Pinot Meunier. Okay. Very classic. So Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, very classic wines that you see in Champagne. And 34% Pinot Tosh. Okay. That gives it a <laughs> real South African flavor. I, uh, yeah, have never had something like this before, so I'm very excited about it. Tell, tell me what you were thinking about in, in making this. Yeah, Can I just maybe uh, start the story from the beginning? I think this wine or the style of wine is very much what uh, our estate is uh, best known for because uh, historically most sparkling wines in South Africa were made according to the carbonation method. And then uh, my father traveled to uh, France and visited Champagne and he came back with this idea to make uh, a champagne-style sparkling wine in South Africa. So in 1971, he did just that. And it was the first uh, Metro Champenoise ever made in the country. And uh, out of that, uh, when he had to start selling it, he, did, he realized we can't call it champagne or even Metro Champenoise. And that's where he uh, coined the name uh, in Afrikaans, which is my, my home language, Kaapsafonkel, which means uh, Cape Sparkle. So your your family is responsible for the name. That's that's right for Carpsa. Everybody Funkel. uses it now in South um, It's a very popular. Yeah, well, actually, he thought that it would become the generic name for the style of wine, but uh, in the end, it took ten years before another producer started doing the same. And um, while I was uh, still quite a, a young winemaker, learning the ropes, I. Uh, called some of my colleagues uh, and, and fellow winemakers to taste each other's base wines because, you know, this is a style of wine where you start with uh, a cuvee that goes into the bottle, it goes through another fermentation, and the end result is completely different to what you actually uh, put in the bottle in the first place. So 
I decided to call them up and we could taste each other's uh, cuvées and that was such a success and they were all very eager to learn like I was. And a few years later we said, but we need to find a name for a South African bottle fermented sparkling wine and that's when we we uh, came up with the name Method Cup Classique. So it's the classical method as is made in the Cape, Cape of Good Hope. So, so that's how the Cap Classique name was born. That's how Cap Classique was born. And so it's like the Spanish have Cava and um, the Germans have uh, sect and South Africa has Cap Classique. So it's something that has now really taken root. So I, I have to say, it's just, um, it's, it's a lovely wine. Lovely. And the, I really get like this aroma of, of raspberry, fresh raspberry on it, a little bit of, a little bit of strawberry. Uh, and and then in the mouth it, it continues on. It's pretty, just beautiful wine, just a lovely wine. But what I really am intrigued by are these tiny, very, very fine and elegant bubbles. I just I love the mouthfeel of this wine. It's not overly carbonated. You know, sometimes you get a sparkling wine and it feels like you're putting mouthwash in there. This is absolutely um, uh, per- perfect in terms of the. Uh, that balance and mouthfeel of, of the wine. Yeah, I totally agree with you. The The aim of, of our Brut Rosé is that um, I want the wine to be really prominently fruity and you correct in, in picking up the raspberries, the strawberries, and that yeah. to me is, is what the rosé is all about. You know, you want something that's fresh and refreshing and fruity. And I, I always think that uh, in in terms of warm summer weather, this is a wine that you can drink um because it's this this it's not supposed to be something that's heavy or complex that you um it's just something that's enjoyable and in this case is where the pinotage plays a big role because uh, as a variety it is known for its very uh, outspoken fruit and the strawberries and raspberries but um the pinot noir is the one that's also got raspberries and strawberry fruit but maybe a bit more delicate, a bit more uh, elegant with finesse. So we don't want the pinotage to be too strong. Right. And that's where they complement each other beautifully. Yeah, they really do. I'll even say that, you know, when you were talking about it, it's fruity but refreshing. It's that little pop of citrus at the end on the finish that really completes this wine. Yeah, I think the acidity that uh, you get from the, you know, when we pick the grapes, it's early January, which means that it's sort of the very first part of the season when you have um, slightly underripe grapes. Um, with very high levels of acidity, and that's ideal because uh, you want that crispness, you want the length in the wine, and uh, that's ideal when you pick it early. Start with a relatively low alcohol and sufficient acidity to give the wine the structure and the length on the palate. So, you know, and I love the color too. How are you getting this color? Are you bleeding off or? Um, when we press, it's all whole bunch pressing um, like they do in, in Champagne in okay, France. Okay, so whole clusters. Yes, whole clusters. Okay. And uh, then we separate the juice into the, the cuvee, which is like the first runoff. Um, and then the second um, fraction is called the tie in French or the first pressing and that normally is when you start getting a bit more color from the Pinot Noir as as well as the Pinotage. So that's one component that we can use to to uh, make the color slightly darker because uh, if you do it well and you do it properly the cuvées are actually just sort of a light coppery color so it's almost white when you do it well and then Using a bit of the the first pressing, that's where the color comes in. Right, so you have the free run and and then the first press. That's right. Okay, but and that's the only first a little of you, the first press. 
just to just to kind of give it a little color. Yes. Wow. So you, okay. That that's pretty cool. So this is like a real dusty pink. Uh, not, it is not not a reddish pink. So it's very. Uh, uh, it also looks friendly to drink. <laughs> it tastes friendly to drink. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on now to to the Chenin Blanc, which I mean, I have to. When you poured this wine out, the studio just exploded with the, the aroma of this wine. It's very aromatic, and and the bouquet is just a lovely. Wow, got you know immediately immediately for me, I, I'm getting sort of a pineapple and kiwi coming right up through the you know through the bouquet, and now and of course now I get a tasted so. Uh, tropical fruit, sometimes uh, a white peach, um, a nectarine. Uh, flavors mm. so uh, oh definitely in the palate definitely getting that orchard fruit yeah that stone fruit that nectarine that peach and again nice balance lovely balance uh it kind of sits on the tongue you know kind of uh, it, this is kind of a, a weightier wine than than one would expect yes, yes. um you know that's one thing of of Chenin Blanc firstly uh it it is making up about almost 20% of the national vineyard in South Africa. So South Africa is known for its Chenin. In actual fact, we there's more Chenin Blanc planted in South Africa than in France. So uh, uh, they're the classic country where the variety originated. I think it, it was so popular because it was so flexible and versatile in our conditions, and it really makes a very consistent quality of wine. When we make our Chenin, in the past, we just used to pick as ripe as possible. So the wines used to be quite big and, and round and um, full-blown. But uh, more recently, I started to split the, the harvest into an early portion where you, you get the freshness and higher acidity and you get uh, some of that mineral touch that's uh, yeah. beautiful in the wine. Yeah, absolutely. And then the later you go, the more of the stone fruit, tropical fruit that, that comes. And then right at the end, there's always a part that we leave on the vine so that it starts to shrivel up almost as if it wants to turn into raisins. And then you start getting a, a bit of caramel and honey and um, dried fruit, dried apricots. And then when you when you assemble all of them, you get all these layers of flavor and that's what is coming out in the glass. So you're making multiple passes through the vineyard. Sometimes we'll pick one vineyard more more than once, but quite often it's uh, one vineyard will be picked at an early stage, and so it depends on. Okay. Um, yeah, so certain vineyards we know will will go the whole length of the race. Others you have to pick slightly earlier because of the soil type and so forth. So we it's it's a nice thing when you you know your uh, estate and you know the vineyards and each one's potential. Right. How many hectares are there under, or I should say, acres? If, if yeah, you convert it to I actually acres converted this morning because oh, I knew I was going to. Um, <laughs> How many acres total, are under vine? We have about four hundred and forty acres, which is uh, more than enough. I can say it's uh, plenty. Uh, that is a big piece of land. That's a lot. Yeah, I think when my father was uh, uh, starting out, I don't think land was nearly as expensive as nowadays. So. He uh, bought more properties, and over the years, we did uh, expand vineyards, but nowadays we are pretty content. That's what I say. It's more than enough. So just out of curiosity, does this Chenin Blanc see any oak at all, or is it 100% stainless? What's no, what's the, going on with this wine? This one is, is 100% stainless steel fermented, cold fermented. And the interesting thing is that uh, the very first wine that 
uh, Simonsach ever bottled in 1968 was uh, Simonsach Blanc, but in those days it was known in South Africa as Steen, S-T-E-E-N. So this wine has been in our portfolio for more than 50 vintages. So last year we celebrated our 50th anniversary as a label that's on the market. And in the South African context, that is one of the very first. So it's quite a milestone for us to reach the half century. I don't think of Chenin Blanc as being fat, like a fat white wine. This borders on that probably because of the, the late harvest grapes that you're adding in to this, giving it that roundness. And while I normally think of having crayfish or lobster with a Chardonnay, I think this wine would be stunning with like a grilled lobster or our beloved abalone. Yeah, definitely. Um, the the wine is actually quite versatile because it's so fruity. It's it's really nice as a just a glass of wine as an aperitif on its own because that acidity keeps it very lively on the palate. But because uh, it also pairs very well with uh, many different types of food or just an alfresco uh, type of uh, salad or a chicken salad. So it is really a wine that is uh, versatile, but I think you're... Your lobster sounds very tempting. You know, um, we I see that we still have some wine in the bottle. Maybe after the podcast, we can go. We're going to grab a lobster somewhere. Grab a lobster somewhere. Really, it's a, a lovely wine again. 2018 vintage. Now we're heading into red windum with what I would consider probably a, a classic red wine. So we're going to try the I think it's the 2016 vintage. Uh, we're going to do the Red Hill Pinotage. What do you want to tell me about this one? Well, I once read they say the the first duty of a wine is to be red. Right. So, um, and its second is to be burgundy. To end that quote, but we're gonna. Our, its second duty here is going to be to be pinotage. Yeah, the the pinotage is um, is also like the Chenin Blanc, one of the fingerprint wines of uh, coming out of South Africa, and. Um, the interesting thing is that where one of the parents, Pinot Noir, has got a small berry and a thin skin and a very light color, the other parent had a bigger berry with a thick skin, but also with not concentrated color. But the offspring in Pinotage um, inherited a lot of the good characteristics of the, both parents. So it's got a small berry, but with a very thick and almost a leathery skin, and that contains... A huge amount of color as well as as tannin and of course then the the beautiful bright fruit that you get in pinotage the one thing that i've learned is that you have to be careful otherwise it will uh, yield too much and your production will go too high and if that happens you you're losing quality so we're doing a lot of work in the vineyard in order to uh, keep the yields in check and still get the concentration of fruit and uh, the balance in the wine right. So tell me about Red Hill. What is what is the Red Hill Pinotage mean? That's a specific site on the on the estate where the soils have got this uh, reddish rust rusty brown color and that is highly prized in terms of wherever you you grow uh, grapes and vineyards in in Stellenbosch. Uh, the red soils are definitely uh, highly sought after, specifically for red wines. But um, you can you can plant other things there too. But priority would be given to to red wines. They are quite deep, so it uh, leaves lots of room for the soil for the roots to go right down, uh, access water, and um, also extract all the good nutrients from the soil. So, Johan, I've I've had I'm not by no means a pinotage expert, but I've had my fair share of pinotage. 
And and I have to say, this is one of the best I have had the privilege to taste. What I love about this wine, the nose, and I'm not sure that I've experienced this before with a Pinotage, is this forest floor bramble. I don't know what you kind of liken that to in South Africa, but it's it's got this brambly and you know black fruit undertone that's and forest floor that's just really captivating just on the aroma. Yeah, definitely the the bramble bramble berry. Uh, there's also some dark plums. You know, when a plum almost goes overripe, it gets that uh, almost a black uh, black fruit blackberry. Uh, characteristics and Pinotage always has a certain amount of aromatic sweetness. So when you smell it, it gives you the impression that it's uh, it's got sweet aromas. Uh, that's partly also in this case contributed mm. by the the use of oak, but um, it is something that uh, is part and parcel of of P- Pinotage's uh, flavor profile. I want to come back to the oak in a second, but the flavor profile on this is again the balance is is beautiful. It's coating the flavors go all the way back on the tongue, and you just get this kind of under-the-radar uh, under tannin grip that really supports those black fruit. Some There's like a spice in there, too, and maybe a little bit of tobacco. It's I just agree. beautiful all, all the way through this wine. What kind of oak are you? Is it, is it French, American? Um, what? In, in this case, uh, mostly French oak. Uh, 80% okay. would be uh, French oak barrels and... Uh, 20% uh, American oak, because that brings in some of that sweet vanillary aromas as well as that slight sweetness. And you shouldn't have too much of it, because right. the French gives you French oak gives more of a uh, a dry finish and right. a bit more Dries of a, a tannic bit, yeah. extraction. So the, the combination of the two types of oak is actually what we found works very well. Well, you, you've got the right formula, because this wine is, is just spot on. Like I said, I've... Yeah, you know, I've had my fair share of Pinotage. I'm I'm not sure I've had one this well structured. Is oh, thank you very really much. Just a, a beautiful structure. So just just know. yesterday, just uh, quickly, the uh, the association that looks off the Pinotage in South Africa, they run an annual competition called the the Pinotage Top Ten, and the results were announced yesterday. And uh, I'm very pleased to say that everybody in the cellar is smiling very because our 2017 Redil was again chosen as one of the uh, the top 10 pinotages. So it's now I had a, a good run of uh, seven times making that cut. So it's something that we are really proud of. Congratulations. That's great. And we're drinking the 2016. That's right. right. And uh, and I see that it retails here for, for around $40, which is an incredibly great price for a wine of this quality. Yeah, I think it's, it's also if, uh, South Africa is trying to get more of a foothold in the in this market and at this stage, and not only at this stage, but I think all through the the portfolio, uh, we offer a really good value. And I think the ratio between price and quality is, is really outstanding. I love it. I love it. Now we're going to go into that very interesting wine that we started the podcast with when we talked about the Merlot and the Cabernet Sauvignon and the Pinotage. And again, I love that you named it after your father. So. He was away at the time on holiday, so when he got back, he had no further say. But he was he was uh, very pleased. Some of the best wines are made while the parents are away. <laughs> <laughs> I have more than one story about that. But the Simon Sig Franz Milan is a red wine blend. Again, it is a 67% Pinotage, 29% Cabernet Sauvignon, and 4% Merlot. 
does is that a fairly consistent blend or does it change year to year? This is a I believe the 2015 vintage. Yeah. You know, the first vintage of this was 1994 when I started after the experimental ones that I made for the auction and uh, over the years I always thought let's test the boundaries a little bit. So at one stage it was a much more cabernet and less and less uh, so almost 45, 45 each with 10% of uh, Merlot. And what I realized and what I learned out of that, although that was a beautiful wine, it was a 2003 and but I learned that the beauty of this wine is actually that juiciness and the sweet aromatics coming from the Pinotage. The role of the, the Pinotage is to bring that, uh, that to the wine, but to balance the intrinsic sweetness of Pinotage, the Cabernet is there to, to bring the tannic backbone. Obviously, it also has beautiful fruit, but Cabernet is, is a robust variety on its own. And when you combine the Pinotage and the Cabernet, you find that it brings a, a dry finish at the end. And that was, that's what I always look for, that you get that a point in the combination of those two varieties where you're almost creating a new flavor. So it shouldn't taste too much like Pinotage. It shouldn't taste like Cabernet, but the end result should be something that's like something that's on its own. And then I think you've made a successful blend, not forgetting the Merlot, because the Merlot to me is the is almost the glue that keeps the two together and fills all the holes in between, you know. Uh, so Merlot is always a wonderful variety to add mid-palate fruit and give a bit of that chocolatey uh, characteristic to the wine. And that's why I think the three really make for a very happy marriage. Mm-hmm. Not that you'll have three people in a marriage, but... <laughs> Maybe you should rename the wine Ménage à Trois. <laughs> <laughs> so, you caught me mid-sip um, in that. But I, I will say that the aromatics on this wine, very different than the Pinotage. Uh, distinctly different. And what I'm really picking up in that is, of course, there's the plum, which I love, that, that sort of that ripe plum but there's there's a distinct for me a distinct pop of tomato leaf in in this wine that I'm really getting not vegetal not vegetal mm. but sort of almost a a harbinger of what you would expect from cabernet sauvignon you know that that tomato leaf a little bit of that green pepper pop uh, uh aromatically not getting it on the palate interestingly enough not at all as a matter of fact the palate super ripe lovely plum blackberry I'm kind of picking up maybe like an orange clove or uh, baking spice in in this in in the back end. Kind of a really interesting, just a, a lovely way to finish that wine. And again, I have to hand it to you: the, the balance is is just spot on. I just the dynamic tension, if you will, between the fruit and the tannins just are, are, are very harmonious. Yeah, the the cabernet is there definitely. The aromatics of the cabernet is, is as you say, a little bit herbaceous almost, and and that is, uh, it does tone down the sweetness of the it of does. the Pinotage. Yeah, it absolutely. Um, and and I must say, it's also uh, fortunate that the 2015 was maybe one of the greatest vintages we've had in in decades. You know, uh, some people say the greatest vintage ever, but let's be a bit more uh, uh, modest. But it it was really a an outstanding vintage. I think. I always think about it like that movie, The Perfect Storm, like this was a vintage where everything was there and the right intensity and quantity, not easily repeated. 
That is, it's a beautiful wine. Again, I'm looking at the price sheet here. It's an amazing value, under $40 for this quality of wine. This is a wine, I think, fairly versatile. I'd, a lot of Cabernets, you, know, you don't necessarily want to drink on it their own. This, I, I could absolutely be very happy just drinking this wine on its own. I think it'd be great with a cheese course, but I think it would be killer with <laughs> a big porterhouse steak. Uh, it's it's just got enough of the tannins to cut through, uh, you know, the richness of the steak, and it just keeps going. As a matter of fact, it's been thirty or forty five seconds now since it just you know had the last sip, and it's just still there. It's very persistent on the finish. Yeah, I agree with you. The the big porterhouse steak is something that um, a wine with this luscious uh, richness will definitely work very well. It will stand up to the meat, but it will also complement the. The meat, and it is uh, my only uh, way of saying why uh, this wine is important is that it's my wife's favorite wine, and I can't really argue with that. Although we argue most, nor should you. (laughs) (laughs) I I was once having a what I would say a heated debate with uh, with with my uh, wife, and and then I realized that I was riding a horse down the wrong hill and quickly backtracked and and said, "Yes, dear, I apologize." And my son said, "Dad, why do you always?" Why do you always give in? And, and I said, you know, son, what's what's the prize you you get for winning a, a fight with your wife? And he said, a good night's sleep on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> he was wise at yeah. that early age. <laughs> That's right. So, anyway, thank you so much for joining me today for this episode of the Vine Guy. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, not only having you here in the studio, but but being able to taste these wines with you. Uh, and and actually, if you wouldn't mind, could you just Quickly recap the wines that we've we've tasted for our listeners. Yeah, first of all, we had the Simon Sig Brut Rosé, uh, the Method Cap Classique, so a bottle fermented uh, sparkling wine made according to the French Champagne method. And then we had the Sim- Simon Sig uh, Chenin Blanc 2018 vintage, uh, something that's so truly and typical of South Africa, the grape variety. Um, then we had the Red Hill Pinotage, which is uh, a variety that is uh, probably their signature red wine of South Africa. And last, we had the France Milan, which is a Cape blend because it's a truly South African blend with uh, mainly Pinotage, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Merlot from the 2015 vintage. Right, the perfect storm vintage. The perfect storm vintage. Johan, thank you very much for joining me today. It's It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you very much for the invitation, and uh, thanks for all the listeners listening. Thanks for listening to The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at The Vine Guy and catch my Wine of the Week segments on Fridays on WTOP and WTOP.com. Sarah Beth Hensley produced this episode. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Until the next episode, do good, drink well. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples... 
Temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.